In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hey everyone, this is Patrick. Welcome uh, to this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast, where we are talking about entrepreneurship, and this is going to be a different angle on it today. So make sure you go and check out the show notes at thewealthstandard.com. Follow us on social media. I'm actually going to be doing a kind of a YouTube review of my thoughts in regards to my guest uh, today and really what I wanted to learn from that. So make sure you go and check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Paradigm Life. All right, so let's get to our my guest today. It's William D. Cohan. He is a columnist for a Bloomberg View and Vanity Fair. He is the author of several books. He has a new one coming out uh, this summer, but the books that he currently has available is Why Wall Street Matters, and then also The Last Tycoons, The Secret uh, History of Lazarus Freres and Company. He also wrote uh, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street, and uh, also The Price of Silence, the, the Duke Lacrosse Scandal, The Power of the Elite, and The Corruption of Our Great University. So you can imagine this is going to be some awesome dialogue and conversation. So with further ado, uh, welcome my guest, William Cohan. William, welcome to the show. So my first question is, given your experience with Wall Street, what is the relationship between Wall Street and the entrepreneur? Uh, some of these tech companies, these so-called unicorns, a lot more tech companies are able to obtain a capital that they need in other ways besides going public from hedge funds, from venture capital firms, from private equity firms and funds, from all sorts of uh, sovereign wealth funds. I mean, so there's, there's all sorts of new and different ways. And there are also other exchanges and other you know, sort of private capital marketplaces that have started to provide companies with capital that they need in ways that are new and different than ever existed before, sort of delaying the IPO, the inevitable IPO. So you'll see you know, Uber, even though it didn't, you know, achieve the lofty goals that its underwriters and the company may have hoped by being valued at something like $100 billion. I mean, it still was valued at like, you know, $74 billion, which, you know, for an IPO and raising more than $8 billion in an IPO is still one of the largest of all time. So the consequence of companies getting capital elsewhere and being able to delay what used to be sort of the only way a company could get the capital it needed is that these uh, IPOs are bigger and sort of more of an event than they used to be in the past, which unfortunately can allow for the process to be manipulated and retail investors sort of taking it on the chin as often happens. But the dynamics on Wall Street and raising capital have been changing for some time. And with the internet, I'm sure they'll change even more. 
Do you see, I know Uber specifically, and I can't speak to the more recent ones, but I know that there were a number of articles written after the IPO where you know Uber was losing money. They weren't profitable and they kind of required more and more rounds of, you know, of funding and kind of the IPO became a necessity in, in essence, right? Because I know that there were some end investors, you know, there's some articles written about end investors, you know, not necessarily getting their investment back yet. You know, with that as something I see in smaller companies that are, that are raising capital, it's more for, you know, not necessarily to be uh, profitable right away, but down the road. Is that an occurrence that's happened in the past or is that more of a recent phenomenon? Well, look, I think it often becomes about the story and the industry that you're in. You know, I think you may be too young to recall sort of what went in 1999 and 1998, but, you know, a lot of companies were trying to go public that A, had no business being public and B, you know, were far from profitable. And they were able to do it because, you know, investors just, you know, couldn't get enough of that kind of a company at the time. After the collapse of the tech market and the tech bubble, in like March of 2000, I think combined with 9-11 a year and a half later, I think that whole, you know, capital market just sort of dried up for that kind of risk. But like, it's like Rasputin, it's come back from the dead. It keeps coming back and, and investors are willing to suspend their disbelief. I mean, and then, you know, you have an example of Amazon where it had years and years of losses and investors kept having faith and bidding up the price of the stock. And then, of course, now it is profitable and increasingly profitable. And they've got other business lines like the cloud business that they have, AWS, that really drives a lot of their profitability. So sometimes investors get rewarded for this kind of blind faith and other times they get their head handed to them. I think, by and large, the tech companies that are coming public now are older and are closer to profitability and are bigger and more substantial than what was going on 20 years ago. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't risks for investors. And I think investing in IPOs is a very risky thing to do. And, you know, the, the Wall Street underwriters make it seem so tempting and so delicious. You have to buy Lyft, you have to buy Uber, but, you know, that's their job. They're expert salesmen and it's investors' job to be caveat emptor, to be wary of what these guys are selling because ultimately they're benefiting themselves and their institutional investors and the early investors and not the people who are buying it at the IPO. I know you talk, have talked quite a bit in you know, your books and also interviews you've done regarding how Wall Street is, is set up and why 2008, or not the only reason, but one of the primary reasons why 2008 happened do you see the regulation of the capital markets changing as it relates to how they're raising capital, the leverage that they're using, the risk this, that they're taking? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, after the financial crisis in 2008, there's obviously the you know, regulatory environment tightened up considerably. We went from, you know, relatively laissez-faire regulation to, you know, Dodd-Frank laws, the vocal rule, all sorts of new regulations that were you know, implemented, but basically that all, all ended with the election of Donald Trump, and now it's pretty much being rolled back. It's not exactly clear how it's being rolled back, but there's just a sense that there's much less regulation now, and deregulation is the way it's going to be, time being. And so I think you know companies are taking advantage of that as best as they can. I mean, on Wall Street, the Fed is 
the new regulator of all these Wall Street banks, the big ones, and the Federal Reserve. And but they're not allowing any mergers between, you know, none of these big firms can do a big a transformative mergers, and you know they've been able to do that for uh, more than ten years now. So there's sort of probably some pent up strategic demand of, among these. Wall Street firms for how they're going to potentially, you know, compete going forward. But until the Fed allows them to do these kind of mergers, they're not going to be able to. And, you know, I think, but other regulations are being loosened, some capital requirements, uh, the kinds of uh, business lines they can be in, all that is being loosened up to some degree. And if you ask people on Wall Street, they say, that's great. You know, it's about time. The post financial crisis regulations were too restrictive. You know, you ask politicians like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and and they want to, you know, do more. They don't want to loosen these uh, restrictions and these regulations. So, you know, there's always a pendulum. It was too loose before the financial crisis. And of course, now that has to be tightened up. So that quote unquote never happens again. And now you could argue that it's too loose again, that that was too tight. Wall Street types are never happy with any kind of regulation. <laughs> so, are you, you know, if you were speaking on behalf of like the, the typical investor, would you say that the lessons that came from some of the turmoil in 2008, 2009, the dot-com crash or earlier aren't necessarily an issue that we've learned those lessons and that the growth that deregulation often creates is sustainable and there aren't any unintended consequences? I don't think either investors or bankers or executives at banking firms ever learn their lesson about the financial <laughs> crisis. I think, you know, they're all in the business of trying to make as much money as they possibly can all the time. And whatever the capital markets permit or the regulatory environment permits or the business environment permits, they will push it to the max to try to make as much money as they can. And, uh, you know, I've written extensively over the last few years about how, frankly, I see the problem repeating itself. The problem that got us into the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008 is being repeated now 11, 12 years later. And you can write about it till you're blue in the face. But frankly, uh, you know, investors are buying up securities that are too risky, not getting compensated enough for the risk they're taking. And that's just Unfortunately, the way it all starts all over again, and in large part that's driven by the Federal Reserve's policy of keeping interest rates, you know, very low for a very long period of time, which was probably a strategy that made sense when we were in the thick of the financial crisis. But now, all these years later, unfortunately, it drives investors to take risks that they're not getting properly compensated for, and that's exactly what happened last time around 12 years ago and here we are doing it again so you know, do people learn lessons no they don't will the crisis happen exactly the next one happen exactly the way the last one did no it won't but will there be another financial crisis absolutely you can bank on it hmm. Probably so sooner you, rather than later so what i'm hearing you say is this is more of a, a regulator issue than anything else because obviously if there are certain rules right and you have incentives, right, of the, the Wall Street bank. I mean, they want to receive compensation and be, you know, be rewarded for their efforts. Okay. So they're following rules to the best of their abilities. So the regulation side of things is really where the linchpin is. Or am I misinterpreting that? I think that's right. I mean, essentially, 
Wall Street is sort of a Darwinian war pit where the battles are played out every day. And so it's, it's kind of a zero-sum game. There can only be one winner, as we used to say. One of the firms I worked at, it wasn't enough for you to succeed. Others had to fail. Bankers and traders and corporate execs, you know, all those, they're going to do whatever they can to make as much money as they can that is legal. The crime, as I've written about, about the 2008 financial crisis is not what was illegal, but what was legal. Yeah. I mean, just human nature involved. They get rewarded to take big risks with other people's money. That's exactly what they're going to do. So I don't blame them for doing their business, for taking the risks that they take, for using other people's money to do it, to produce the products they produce. What I think, to your point exactly, is that if you don't have a cop on the beat, you know, just like if, you know, there were no speed limits on the highway and no state cops coming after you, if you drive too fast, people would drive, you know, 120 miles an hour or faster and the roads would be much more dangerous. They drive drunk. I mean, so Wall Street is no different. I mean, human nature is human nature. You know, there are regulations for a reason. People, you know, are required to wear seatbelts. They're required to drive when they're not drunk. They're required to drive and, and not text. They're required to drive within the speed limit. Does some people disregard those laws and get caught for it? Yes. Do some people disregard those laws and not get caught for it? Yes. But most, by and large, most people kind of, you know, obey the law, and that's what happens on Wall Street. But if you don't have the laws, if you say, okay, you, there's no speed limit, you can don't have to wear a seatbelt, you can text when drive when you're drunk or drive while you're texting then guess what? People will probably do that and there'll be a lot more accidents and danger and the roads will be a form of become weaponized. And so that's what is going to happen on Wall Street as we begin to pull back from the 2010 Dodd-Frank laws and the other rules and regulations that are put in place in the Obama administration. And you have to recognize that you're when you do that, you're you know allowing the animal spirits to run free, which, you know, you know, allows Donald Trump to make claims about how great the economy is doing, but there are going to be consequences, and there always are, and there always have been, and to think otherwise is ahistorical. And, you know, people thought that somehow the rules of economics had been lifted 2006 and 2007, and it just wasn't true, as we found out in 2008, and we're going to find that out again. You know, there's a couple things that are going through my mind based on these awesome, awesome comments and insights which is the entrepreneur, right? They're quick and they're agile typically, right? And they're coming up with, you know, an idea here, an idea here. And, and, you know, you look at the speed in which technology is allowing society to evolve. And then you go to, you know, the regulation side of things. It's hard to catch up. I can't remember which documentary was, but it was, you know, giving kind of a snippet of, you know, the regulators, you know, those at the SEC in certain roles that were you know, essentially over a certain element of Wall Street that was taking excessive risk. And, you know, there's one person in, the, in that role. And uh, you look today, and I'm sure it's bigger, but, you know, government obviously is renowned for not being able to keep up with uh, how fast everything else is, is going. Do you think that is a, a characteristic of what's going on or, do you, or that may be a misinterpretation? Well, look, I think it's clear that politicians certainly do not understand what goes on on Wall Street. I think regulators probably do, but they're definitely outnumbered. But on the other hand, there's a lot more regulators floating around these firms than there ever used to be. 
especially the big firms. I mean, uh, now that they're regulated by the Fed, I mean, there are Fed people, you know, who go, you know, who have offices at these firms. They have, you know, they can go to board meetings. They can look at loan portfolios. They can attend credit judgment conversations. You know, that's definitely a new world post 2010. But is some of that being rolled back? Yes. There are articles, you know, constantly now and Fed comments constantly about whether or not there's too much leverage in the system, whether companies are taking on too much debt, which, of course, they were encouraged to do by the Fed because interest rates were kept so low. And so, you know, like AT&T has $180 billion of debt now. I mean, it's the most indebted company on the planet. Is that too much debt? You know, I mean, maybe if the economy stays strong, it's not. But if the economy begins to to stumble, there'll be defaults on that debt. And, you know, AT&T could go into bankruptcy. It's not inconceivable. They have $180 billion of debt. So a lot of debt, and it's unforgiving. GE has like $100 million, a billion dollars of debt. I mean, companies have really bulked up on debt in, in part because of the interest expenses tax deductible. So that means it appealing from a tax basis and interest rates are very low and have been kept low by the Fed. Trump is jawboning about interest rates and trying to keep the Fed from raising them as it was doing you know, last year. So to me, the Wall Street guys are always going to be able to outrun the regulators, but the regulators kind of have the last word. So they can party for a while, <laughs> and then, you know, then they have to come, their hat in their hand, asking for bailout or to be rescued or saved, as happened in 2008. You'd think they'd be more contrite. You'd think they'd want to, Wall Street would be more contrite and want to actually change what they do and how they reward people. But, you know, I've written a hundred pieces about how the compensation system on Wall Street should be changed. And, you know, nobody wants to change it. So it doesn't change. And that's what's going to lead us down the down into the well again. It's not going to end well. It never does. And it won't this time either. But, you know, people can't see that. Nobody rings a bell at the top of the market. Says that's the end of it, guys. So, you know, take, we're taking the punch bowl and going home. Unfortunately, it seems to come out of nowhere and people will be amazed. And yet there were breadcrumbs all along and there have been plenty of breadcrumbs. But but they're not, no, seeing, no. they're not seeing unless, you know, they're seeing hindsight once it all happens. Well, of course. But, you know, it's the really smart people who prepare themselves to be safe. Warren Buffett says when the tide goes out, you can see who's wearing a bathing suit. We're at the end of a very long uh, bull market for both stocks and bonds. And companies would be wise and investors would be wise to prepare themselves for a downturn. Hmm. So maybe one final topic before we wrap this up, and we, I really appreciate your, your insight. This has been awesome. You made comments about you know, the bond market and the common you know, thing we saw the last couple of years, which is you know, essentially companies taking on debt because of low interest rates and buying back, buying back stock. And it's essentially propped up in essence uh, stock prices to, to an extent, but obviously the consequences loading the company with a tremendous amount of debt. So with that, do you identify, you know, the bond market as one of those potential areas that could, you know, be the, you know, the match for this turmoil? Or do you maybe see other areas that are out of sync or in unease relative to others? Because I look at, you know, what caused the crisis, you know, in 2008-2009, right, where it was mostly the, the mortgage, you know, mortgage market. But now looking at where we're at, I mean, are you, are you looking closely at, you know, the bond market or other or other sectors and areas? If you look at past financial crisis, it's when the credit market sees up that things really get bad. In other words, when people can't get 
the money they need to borrow the money they need for a car or a house or, or to build their business or, you know, the money market, if that all seizes up, if somebody throws sand into the gears of the credit markets, that's when the financial crises are at their worst. I am very worried about that this time around. I think, uh, you know, bond uh, prices are very high. Yields are very low, have been for, you know, close to 10 years now. And, you know, it's just very dangerous to invest in the bond market right now. People can lose an awful lot of money, even though it seems like it should be safe. And there's all sorts of excesses going on in the bond market and in the loan market, uh, credit markets, where investors are just, you know, so desperate to get a higher yield because, you know, treasury securities are yielding so little that they're taking risks uh, without getting the proper rewards, as we've talked about before. And, I think that that is just a recipe for disaster. I mean, the corporate bond market is now something like $10 trillion of issuance. It was $5 trillion in 2008. So you've seen a doubling of issuance as a result of uh, interest rates being low uh, for so long. And, you know, bonds fluctuate in value as risk is perceived to change. I mean, just Look at the bonds of Tesla in the last couple of weeks, <laughs> GE bonds. I mean, it, go, it goes on and on and on. So, I mean, can companies turn things around? Can, can discounted bonds be a good investment? Yes, but they can also be a bad investment. They can also go the other way. And that happens uh, often and repeatedly. So I'm not sure what the catalyst is going to be. You know, there are plenty of things that are going crazy now in the capital markets, in the debt markets. You know, auto loan defaults are at a all-time high, uh, corporate debt is at an all-time high, default uh, relative low, so that means they can only kind of go one direction. I'm very worried about it, but, you know, I could be like a broken clock that's right twice a day, too. So, <laughs> Well, there's this, yeah, the signs are out there. I think they're breadcrumbs everywhere, right? It's just, it hasn't happened. And, you know, I... Well, of course, I, nobody rings a bell at the top of the market, as I said, you know. There's two sides to every part of the market. There's always somebody every day, every minute, you know, when a trade happens, there's one person who believes that what they bought is going to go up from here. And there's another person who sold it because they believe it's going down from here. Yeah. That happens every minute of every day. And the aggregate of all of the trading and all of that thinking and all of those bets is the market. Well, was it, you know, I'm not sure if you've read, you know, Howard Marks's new book, How the uh, Market Cycle Works or something, something like that. But I heard him speak a few months ago and it was interesting where you had this whole emotion, you know, the, how human beings work, you have an emotional side and a rational side. And it, you, know, you look at all the rational things that we've talked about. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And there's very little rationale, you know, as far as why things continue to grow and not correct it seems like most of that is driven by emotion and wanting more of this and more of that. And, you know, obviously with the gains that primary indexes have had since the financial crisis, you know, I would say the average investor is just continuing to ride the wave and really don't see that there is a, you know, that there's a crashing of that wave that is, that is on the horizon, but who knows? Yeah. It's one of those, like, I think the greater the emotion builds, it'll be interesting to see what happens this go around because the, the capital markets are a lot bigger than they were in 2007. Uh, I mean, we, you can bank on the fact that something bad is going to happen. You just don't know when. Yeah. I know that you're always paying attention to this and your your insight was hugely valuable today. What are some ways that uh, the listeners can 
follow you or, or keep up with, you know, the analysis that you're making on what's going on in the economy and in markets? You know, I have a website, williamcohan.com. People can sort of follow along there. I have a new book coming out in, in July. And yeah, I'll just put a Google alert up. Wherever it pops up, it'll pop up. Uh, you know, I'm a believer in you know, organic, you know, not feeding people what I write. If they come about it organically, that's great. If, if they don't, okay, so be it. Are you on Twitter or social media anywhere? Where you're, yes, you're, okay. I, I'm on Twitter, yes, at William Cohan with an A. Okay, we'll ma- I'll make sure that I put, yeah, we get all this stuff posted in the show notes for, for listeners so they can either go to your website, subscribe to if you have newsletter or something like that, or Google Alerts and then Twitter as well. Because yeah, I think your insight is awesome, right? And obviously you have the experience to, to back up why you think and perceive the way that you do. And so keeping up to speed what you continually see, I think is going to be valuable for investors. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again, William. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Bye. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, a financial strategy to reignite the American dream, is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio, and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh.